The book of Daniel is one of the most fun books in the Bible to read because it's filled with amazing stories. It's also one of the most confusing books of the Bible to read because it's filled with completely almost non-understandable visions that get increasingly confusing to the very end where Daniel will say, they explained it all to me and then they told me to seal it up so nobody could understand it. So it seems as if at a certain point, the message of Daniel is certainly for you to believe that God's in control of history and that you are not going to be able to see it. Now, with that said, I think I can explain many of those later passages of Daniel, at least to some extent. And I will try to do so in the later sermon today where we have more time to dig into the text. Today here, what I want to do is give you an overview of it, give you some of those stories, show you where to find them, tell you about the confusing passages, show you where to find them, and then close by talking about this document and what we do believe about the end of the world and how we do believe something quite different than most American Christians who are kind of looking for a certain series of things to take place before the world can end. It's very important. Most Christians do not believe that Jesus could come back today. The temple in Jerusalem has to be built again first. And so there are even groups who consider political support of Zionist Israel to be essential to Christianity. Not a good idea, not a political move, not for the United States, essential to Christianity. We don't believe that at all. We think that's nonsense. I'll try to make that case in a little bit. But let's just start with the book of Daniel and some of these amazing stories. Yes, it's on page 737 of your pew Bible. If you'd like to follow along, Daniel actually is very easy to outline. That's not the case for a lot of different books of the Bible. But you'll kind of see that as we go along, that every single chapter does seem to be its own little section up until the last three chapters that are all one vision, and yet it still is broken up pretty well. So chapter one, which has 21 verses in it, again, on page 737, tells you the setup for the entire thing. For this, you'll have to kind of fall back and remember that after David's kingdom, that great king who established Israel as God's people, fulfilling all the promises given to Moses and Joshua of extending the land and the borders so that he reigned from sea to sea. After his son Solomon takes the promises given to him and becomes the wisest man who will ever live and builds that temple for God's ark to dwell in. After his son Rehoboam splits the kingdom in half on the basis of his folly and on the basis of Solomon's folly, for indeed he did worship foreign gods at some point in his life. The kingdom turns into two different places, Israel in the north and Judah in the south. And they have a bit of a civil war that's somewhat ongoing, a brother versus brother, but not so much that gets worse and worse, as they also flirt with various forms of idolatry, that is, the worship of the creature rather than the creator, uh, pinnacling or, or being most seen clearly in the two golden calves, not one, but two, that are set up in northern Israel, who the north then is eventually destroyed and swept away by that great empire, Ashuria, Assyria of old. Uh, Assyria is eventually destroyed but uh, by a kingdom called Babylon. But around the same time that that's happening, uh, the son of Hezekiah, who actually turns back Assyria by prayer, the son of Hezekiah, Manasseh, he sets up so much idolatry in the actual temple that Solomon built 
that God says, no matter even if you repent, I'm going to destroy you all. Manasseh does repent. There's a few more kings that come, but eventually Babylon does come down and they tear down Jerusalem brick by brick, leaving the prophet Jeremiah weeping lamentations outside the gate. This happens in two attacks, though. A first attack in which they take away many of the elites of the area, young men that are sons of royal families, and they take them back to Babylon and they put them into the life in Babylon. This was common practice back then. It's sort of an insurance policy. If someone came and took all of our firstborns away and said, now don't rebel, otherwise we'll kill them. Well, we might not rebel then, right? So it's kind of the idea. And Daniel and his three friends, most famously known as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, not their Hebrew names, but their Babylonian names, they go in that first group of people before the final rebellion that leads to the destruction of of Jerusalem. So our story picks up with these young men being taken to Babylon and enrolled in the schools of the Magi. Magi is a word that comes down to us in the word magic, and it implies indeed a desire to pursue alchemy and mystery, to read the stars and to distinguish between various things. It's, it's like a proto-science, only not. Uh, although it is because what we'll see right away is that Daniel and his friends are tested as to whether or not they can dwell within these schools as faithful, believing Hebrews or not. And they'll take a stand right away. We'll talk about that that enables them to show themselves as faithful both to the king and to the school. And Daniel will spend his entire life then as one of the chief of these magi, even though many of the other magi are continuing to teach and worship false gods. But the whole point of the book is, are you willing to bend on what you believe when someone threatens you or threatens or or says that it will be bad for you if you do not? And the first way this happens is that when they're sent to school in the cafeteria, as it were, they are fed from the king's table. And Daniel and his friends immediately know they can't eat this food. Now, many Christians who don't read the Bible cover to cover, who don't know what they're talking about, who don't even read all of Daniel cover to cover, will think this is about whether or not we should eat meat or vegetables. It has nothing to do with that. It has everything to do with whether or not you should worship idols. Because Daniel perceives very clearly that the meat that they are being given from the king's table and the wine they are being given from the king's table is being used in the worship of idols. It's part of pagan sacrifices. And so he knows as a Hebrew to remain clean, he cannot partake of it. So he goes to their overseer and he says, please uh, let us not eat this food. Just, Just give us vegetables to eat. And we'll see what happens. And if it doesn't work out, you can do with us as you please. Now, this is quite a bold claim because if you study any kind of science at all, you will discover that eating nothing but vegetables is impossible. You'll actually get sick and die eventually. The vegan movement, which is very popular today, and many people think it's sort of a moral religious idea more than actually a health one. They know when they get into it, you must supplement everything that you eat. You have to go and buy a bunch of extra things to put into your body so that you don't get sick. So what happens to Daniel, although it is only in 10 days, is nonetheless clearly, clearly miraculous. And this is the point. We're going to see this again in just a moment. These are miraculous stories. These are moments when the people of Israel in these four young men 
are tasked with choosing. Do I obey the idols and have my way? Or do I obey God and suffer and God saves them miraculously every time? So as it turns out, they do not eat the idolatrous food. They eat the vegetables. They look stronger than all the other young men. And on we go. Please again, see the hand of God behind this, which will show up again in chapter three, where the miracle goes up another level all the way. But before chapter three, we have a miracle, but not the same kind. First, the king, Nebuchadnezzar, very famous man in history, has a terrible dream. It disturbs him. This is chapter two. You can look at the the title even says Nebuchadnezzar's dream. This will sound a lot like the story of Joseph and Pharaoh. If you remember Pharaoh's dream that gets Joseph out of jail and puts him in charge of everything, very, very similar, but a different dream. He dreams of a statue. Its head is gold, its arms and chest are silver, its thighs and legs are bronze, and its feet are iron and clay. And everything sees it as great and amazing, but then there's a small stone that comes flying across the sky, and it strikes the feet that are mixed of iron and clay, and they shatter. And the entire statue comes falling down. And Nebuchadnezzar wakes up in a cold sweat and he doesn't know what to do. And he calls his magicians, all these magi, and he says, tell me what I dreamed and tell me what it means. Now here, if you remember Joseph's story, Pharaoh doesn't say, tell me what I dreamed and what it means. He says, I'll tell you what I dreamed. You tell me what it means. So Nebuchadnezzar is lifting this burden here just a little bit. And of course, the magicians who don't think these guys are all fakes, believe that these are people who think they can tell the future. They really do think their magic works. But they say to him, nobody can do this. No one's ever asked for this. It's impossible. And he says, fine, you're all going to die. And he puts out an order. He's going to kill them all. Now, when one of the men comes to, one of the soldiers, comes to Daniel's house and knocks on his door at night and says, all right, come out. I got to go kill you. Daniel's like, uh, why? Uh, Well, the king said he had a dream. You guys can't tell him what it means. Daniel says, wait, I can't. Let me talk to the king. Give me some time. Long story short, Daniel does have to return and pray. He spends the night in deep prayer. He asks his friends to pray with him because he doesn't know immediately the answer. But by the time that all this has passed, he has been revealed by God, the dream and its solution. So he goes to Nebuchadnezzar and he tells the dream. Now, I already told it once, so I won't say it again. But he tells the dream and he tells its solution. The head of gold that is the top of the statue is King Nebuchadnezzar and his kingdom. In Daniel especially, kings and kingdoms are the same thing. The head and the body are the same thing. So you, Nebuchadnezzar, are the great golden head, the most glorious kingdom there will ever be. But after you will come another kingdom. Not quite as good as you, the silver chest, right? But still very, very powerful. After them will come another kingdom, the bronze legs, not quite silver or gold, but nonetheless bronze. It can do as it pleases, right? It's it's what you make weapons of war with. Uh, And then after them will come another kingdom, and this kingdom will have iron. It's even better than bronze. It makes bronze look like a small poor metal if you're going to fight back to back with it. And yet the iron is mixed with clay. It's not quite fully iron. There's a brittleness to it. And in the midst of that kingdom, there will come a new kingdom unforeseen before this that will strike that kingdom and become the kingdom that reigns over all things. 
Now, hopefully you can see in this, I'll tell you this, the, the, the names of the kingdoms, we'll come back to this. Babylon, the gold, Persia, the silver, Greece, the bronze, Rome, the iron, and under Pontius Pilate, a little stone that nobody expected, a rock of stumbling over which many will fall, a foundation and cornerstone that will be the center of all things, our Lord Jesus Christ, crucified on the Mount of Golgotha and making Mount Zion the worship of God in spirit and truth according to his resurrected flesh and blood. Hallelujah, he is risen. Hallelujah. All right. So moving on, chapter three, Nebuchadnezzar, having had this dream, says, that's great. There's a big statue that looks like me. I'll make it. And he decides to make a giant statue in a plane and tell everybody that they have to worship it. At this point, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Daniel's three friends, they've been elevated with Daniel to a fairly uh, strong state. They're, They're leaders among the Magi but they refuse to bow down to this statue in the plains. As a result of this, they are going to be given the punishment of anybody in the nation who wouldn't bow down, which is that they're going to be arrested, they're gonna be taken to a fiery furnace, and they're gonna be thrown in as literally a sacrifice and offering to the gods. Hopefully you know this story. I am moving a little fast over it. Long story short though, when they're thrown into the fire, it's heated to be seven times as hot as normal, The soldiers who throw them into the fire die, but they do not. To go one step more, when Nebuchadnezzar looks down from on high into the flames, he doesn't see three people in the fire. He sees four, one like the son of the gods walking among them. So if you have any doubt in miracles in this book, please stop. (laughs) Eating the vegetables and becoming strong and healthy for years, one, Interpreting dreams and knowing the dream without anyone telling you, two. Fiery furnace doesn't kill you, three. It keeps going with chapter four, another dream. And I would tell you the conversion of Nebuchadnezzar to Christianity. We won't spend a ton of time on this, but he has another dream that disturbs him. He trusts Daniel at this point. He invites Daniel to him and says, tell me about this. Daniel says to him, Dear king, I wish I didn't have to tell you this. This dream is so bad for you. May it be about your enemies and not about you. But here's what's going to happen. You're not going to acknowledge that my God is the true God. And so he's going to take the kingdom away from you and make you lose your mind. You're going to go insane. This does happen not that night, but sometime later, Nebuchadnezzar ends up in the fields eating grass like an ox until times, time, and half a time pass, at which point, He acknowledges the true God. He is restored to his sanity. He is restored to his kingdom. And he makes a proclamation, which you can see. Let's look at this here. In chapter 4, verses 4 through, uh, uh, excuse me. We're going to read this. Turn to page 881. We're just going to read this here. Starting at verse 34 of chapter 4, here's what he says of his coming back. At the end of the days, that's the time he was mad, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. 
and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me and for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and my splendor returned to me. My counselors and my Lord sought me and I was established in my kingdom and still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven for all his works are right and his ways are just and those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. Uh, This is the end of, you can see, his own writing, which the opening of chapter four says he publishes to his entire kingdom. Again, for the sake of time, I'd like to say more about that, but we're gonna move on. Here, it jumps forward quite a ways. And for a moment, I want to address all of the challenges to the book of Daniel. Even many faithful Christians do not believe Daniel was written by Daniel. Believing and listening to many, uh, what should I call them, scholars from the 1800s who had half the information, they continue to think that Daniel was written hundreds of years later during the time of the Maccabean rebellion and or revolt. The reason for that is numerous. Part of it is because the prophecies are too obvious. They're too right. They basically say miracles can't happen. Now, for us, we shouldn't have to worry about that. We should just dismiss those fools. Yeah. But for some, it had a lot to do with the next story. Because the next story will talk about a king who is the son of Nebuchadnezzar, who is the one who is there when Persia destroys the country or or takes over the country. And not only is this individual not the son of Nebuchadnezzar directly, but more than that, up until about 160 years ago, his name didn't exist anywhere in history but in this book. And so many would say that, look, the book just made it up. There's no record of this. Of course, one of the things you find when you do study Bible and archaeology is that for the last 160 years, there's been a lot of, look, we can't find this in history that turned into, oh, oh, look, we kept digging. Yeah, we did. It was there after all. But the arguments based on the old claims still make their way into Wikipedia and the textbooks. And so many people out there argue as if this guy didn't exist. And his name again is Belshazzar. Belshazzar is about five kings down from Nebuchadnezzar, but not five generations down. There's some like deaths and uncles and moving arounds and things like that. He might be his grandson or maybe the grandson of his sister kind of thing. But without question, Belshazzar is the son of Nabodius, the last famous king of, of, uh, of Babylon. And he ruled as co-regent, that is co-king with Nabodius for about 10 years. Nabodius was not popular at all. He came to the throne by intrigue. Again, he may have had a marriage claim to the throne. He came to the throne by intrigue, and then he proceeded to stop worshiping Bel, the god of Babylon, and worshiping another lesser known god. And as a result, the people of Babylon didn't like him. So he went into like temporary exile and reigned sort of as a wealthy man through his son, Belshazzar, who had a better name amongst those in Babylon, but who eventually will show himself to be quite foolish. Now, what's happening elsewhere is that the kingdom of Medo-Persia is being consolidated by a man named Chirash, Cyrus, Cyrus the Great. He also comes to the throne by intrigue. He is a Persian. You've probably heard of Persia, but what he's coming to the throne of is Media, which most people don't know about because once Cyrus comes to the throne, Media becomes Persia, if that makes sense. He sort of takes it all over. 
He is married to the daughter of the king of Media, and he will eventually then uh, overtake this man and consolidate and then attack all over the place. He conquers all over the place. So he has an army that is just outside the gates of Babylon at the time that chapter five is taking place. He has already conquered the initial force with Nabodius, this other king. He's already conquered them and Nabodius has fled into hiding. And meanwhile, who knows why, but Belshazzar is deciding to throw a feast. Some say it's because he's finally being coronated. They know his father lost. They think Babylon can't fall. I'm finally going to be king. Let's show everyone what kind of gods we have. And then this is where it goes bad for him. In order to show off the power of his gods, he goes and he gets the implements, the glasses and the plates from the temple in Jerusalem, which Nebuchadnezzar had taken and put into the temple in Babylon. And he begins to use those as the party favors for his party where his concubines and his men are all having a licentious time. And as they're getting drunk on those holy implements, which indeed are holy, again, notice the miracles all the way around, there appears this ghostly hand that writes a couple of confusing words on the wall. If you look, let's see if we can find out what page it's on here. Uh, I think it'll be on page 882. Yes, there it is. I'm sorry, that's on my Bible. I can't tell you that. It's at the end of chapter 5, though, verses 24 to 26. You'll see there are some words that are in all capital letters. Mene, mene, tekel, parson. Those are the words written on the wall. And now we have a little bit of an echo. Nobody knows what these words mean. None of the magi in the city can tell them what it means. The queen mother comes in, probably his grandmother or, or Nebuchadnezzar's wife, who's a very old woman and just being kept in a tower. She says, don't you remember? You got this guy named Daniel you never listened to. He can tell you what it means. Daniel comes in. He says, yeah, I can tell you what it means. It means that you've been weighed in the balances. You've been found lacking and your kingdom's going to be given to the Medes and the Persians. And amazingly, Belshazzar says, you must be right. Here's a, here's a purple robe. Here's a golden chain. I'm going to make you third in charge, even though you used to be that, and I took it away. I'm, I'll put you back. That very night he dies. That very night Persia takes over, and this guy Darius the Mede becomes king of Babylon and Persia. Now, another one of these points of history that gets a little challenging. Who is Darius the Mede? This gets even more confusing because the second great king of Persia, who's not even really there yet, is a guy named Darius. But it's a different Darius, and I'll give you the short answer. Darius the Mede is the given or the born name of Cyrus. That is, when he was just a Persian man married into the Median kingdom, he went by Darius the Mede. Yeah? Um, but when he took the throne, he went by the name of Cyrus. And we can make that argument. It takes more time than I have to give you today. But Darius the Mede comes in. He takes over the area. He, he keeps a lot of the people that are in charge in place. Because when you, when you conquer a country, like you still want the infrastructure to work. So you can't just take everybody out of their offices. And so Daniel stays in place and some of the other magi stay in place. And, and next, chapter 6, you have what is probably, if not Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the most famous story in the Bible. Uh, or in, in Daniel, Daniel and the lion's den. Yes, I think you've probably heard this one. This is where, similar to the setup, you have to worship just this one way. And if you don't, and it happens to be worshiping Cyrus, if you don't worship just this one way, then you're going to be killed. No fiery furnace, but we'll put you in the den of the lions. We're going to put a stone over the top, and you'll be stuck there till you're dead. 
Daniel goes out onto his roof and defies this order. He refuses to pray to Cyrus and he prays to the God of heaven, to our Lord Jesus Christ. And as a result, you know the story, right? He's taken by those who hate him. They take him before the king. The king says, wait a minute, I didn't want to have this happen. They say, you can't change the rules in the middle of the game. They throw Daniel down in the lion's den. They put the stone over the top. A whole night passes. Darius, Cyrus, he doesn't eat that whole night. He's so upset about this, which is really, really something. Uh, in the morning, he runs to the tomb. Well, that should sound familiar. They roll the stone away. That should sound familiar too. And look, there's someone alive. Yeah, there's Daniel. And he has not been killed by the lions who, nonetheless, eat up those other counselors when they're thrown in a few moments later. Notice again, the miracle. It's a miracle that the lions do not eat Daniel. All right. So, who? we got about five more minutes to try to cover this idea of the visions that end up at the end of the book. All right, those are all the stories, though, and hopefully I've, I've encouraged you maybe to go back and look at these in a little more detail. Just reading chapter 6, Daniel and the lion's den by itself, great story. Right? Just reading chapter 3 by itself, great story. All right. So from this point on, we have a number of visions that take place. There's a real shift in the book. In chapter 7, you have the visions of the four beasts. In chapter 8, you have a vision of a ram and a goat. In chapter 9 through 12, you have an ongoing vision of the kings of the north and the south. Now, the way we tell stories, what we would normally do is we'd start small and we'd get big. We'd start with like the little guy who's going to putter out and we'd build up to the big picture with the big ending. But it goes the opposite way here. The vision of the four beasts is going to match up with that statue we talked about earlier, where Babylon and Persia and Greece and then Rome are all going to be represented by these four beasts who come one after the other until the largest beast is eating up everything around. And there's a great wicked horn in its head, the same blasphemous things. And this is, of course, connected to the devil and the death and resurrection of our Lord. Then... The ram and the goat, they zoom in. We take Rome, we forget about them. We take Babylon, we forget about them. And we talk about Persia and Greece and their history of having a fight. Persia is represented by this ram that has two horns, one that's bigger than the other. This is how Persia eventually overshadows, overshadows Media and Persia and becomes just Persia rather than the Medes and Persians right under Cyrus. And then this ram with these one extra large horn gets attacked and destroyed by a goat that doesn't touch the ground and has one giant horn. It's like a unicorn goat, one giant horn, and it flies over the ground and destroys the ram very quickly. This is Alexander the Great and his attack upon the Medes and the Persians or the Persians uh, stirred up by Xerxes and all, all his stuff with Thermopylae, if you knew any of that stuff. But as soon as this happens, as soon as the unicorn goat hits the ram and breaks up his kingdom, the, the main horn falls out and four more horns come up. And this is to show how Alexander the Great, about the time he gets to Babylon, dies. He's only 32 years old. He's done more in his lifetime than most people ever will do, but he just up and dies. And his great empire that he built is divided amongst his four generals who begin to fight over it. From here, we move into that next vision about the kings of the north and south. So we have four generals fighting over the entire Mediterranean. Take one, throw them away. Take another, throw them away. You got two left in the middle. That's the king of the north and south. And we begin to get a history given directly by Jesus 
as well as by the archangel. Gabriel and Michael come in a little bit here. But Jesus himself shows up as the pre-incarnate son and talks about the history of these two kingdoms. Historically, they're called the Ptolemies and the Seleucids. If you can't remember that, that's okay. But Cleopatra comes into it at a certain point. You probably remember her name, yeah? Um, they go back and forth trying to vie for control over the Holy Land. Control over the Holy Land. All of this last vision is in response to something Daniel does in chapter 9 that I want to kind of talk about almost as our closing point today. In chapter 9, Daniel has a prayer. And this prayer is, he's reading the book of Jeremiah. He realizes Jeremiah has promised that they're going to go back to the land and settle the land and put the temple back up. And so he prays, not only how long, God, but also, you know, we don't deserve it. We really don't. But you're merciful and you have promises, so will you do it anyway? And then God comes and says, all right, here's how it's going to go when that happens. And he gives a bunch of the history again of how that temple will be put there, how they'll be fighting back and forth over that land, how they'll come a very wicked man named Antiochus IV Epiphanes. He is one of the Seleucid kings who will not only uh, take over the temple, but desolate it. You may have heard the phrase, the abomination of desolation. He'll sacrifice pigs on the altar so as to make it impossible for it to be holy. If you've heard about the Maccabean revolt, this is all in response to that. It's a great history that we don't have time for today. But again, Jesus gives Daniel all of this history about everything that happens up to the end of the Seleucid reign over Israel, which if we back up again to our big picture, we've come to the end of the ra- we've come to the end of the goat, we've come to the end of the third beast, and we end the book with the fourth beast reign and something happening there. Look at chapter twelve. Oh, it's not set apart like I want it to be. Look at chapter twelve, verses uh, two and following. No, no, no. Verses one and following. Uh, chapter 12, verses 1 and following says this, at that time, right? And I'm going to claim that this is the time of the Roman Empire. At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince who has charge of your people. And there shall be a time of trouble such as never has been since there was a nation till that time. But at that time, your people shall be delivered. What is that? That's Jesus. That's Jesus dying on the cross. Everyone whose name shall be found written in the book And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to everlasting shame and contempt. Now, some will say this is about the last day, and I'm not going to say it's not. But do remember that when Jesus rose from the dead, there were people who rose from the dead with him and walked around for a while and talked to people. Luke tells us about that one. Uh, Verse 3 says, those who are wise will shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro and knowledge shall increase. Now, again, there's there's much more that I could say today. I'm definitely at the end of our time and I feel like I've barely scratched the surface of this thing. But what I want you to see then is how all of these visions, if you read through them, they're very confusing. They're leading up to the certainty that no thing in history, no country, no people, no king can move aside God's plan. And so God's plan to put the Israelites back into Judea in order to have a king come among them and die for the sins of the world 
he not only could say how it was going to happen, but as we know, it has happened. It has happened. Finally, chapter 7 that we read earlier, we have this vision of the Son of Man ascending to the King of, or to the, to the Ancient of Dades and presenting himself on the clouds. Please, if you look at that again, understand that to be about the ascension of our Lord Jesus Christ. That after Jesus died and rose again, with all authority in heaven and earth, as he says in Matthew chapter 28, sending his, his people, his elect, to baptize and teach, to gather from the four winds of heaven those who believe, he ascends and sits down at the right hand of God, having all glory and might and power. Oh my goodness, that's chapter 7. And I didn't even get to this thing. Ha, huh, look at that. Will you give me three minutes? You're going to give me three more minutes. You can do it today. It's Thanksgiving week. Look at this piece of paper. All right, we won't go into detail. What I want you to notice on the first, the first one there, it says dispensational premillennialism. You see that? What I want you to see is at the start, there's a cross, and then there's a church, and then there's lots of stuff. There's so much stuff. And then finally at the end, there's a new heavens and the new earth. I want you to see that at the top of it, it says there's a secret return of Christ. And it says there's a visible return of Christ. And even after the visible return of Christ, Satan has a little season. I want you to see that what that means is A, Jesus can't come back. B, when he does come back, he won't come back. C, when he does come back, he still isn't in charge. And D, then finally it works out in the end. That's very hard to prove from any single passage of scripture. The only way it works is if you cherry pick lots of stuff and ignore lots of stuff. Look at the one below it. It says, ah, millennialism is kind of a, a, a lame word. What it means is that we believe the thousand year reign of Christ began and will never end. Notice how you have the church age, you have this Satan's little season, and you have the second advent, the return of Christ. That is what Lutheranism has always taught. It's what we continue to teach. The place where I would quibble is on that little season part. I believe that the thousand years and the little season are one and the same. Flip the page over and you'll find something that looks a little more like what we believe. This is called classic premillennialism. Remember, dispensational has all this other stuff going on. Classic premillennialism believes this, that Jesus, when he comes back, is first going to reign on earth for a thousand years, and then the devil will rebel, and then there'll be a final ending. This one's held by many more Christians historically. The other one is kind of brand new. But as Lutherans, what we recognize again is it doesn't make any sense. The Bible never says the devil gets another shot after Jesus returns. What it says instead is we just saw it. We will resurrect and shine like stars. Finally, on the bottom, there's something called, oh, I flipped it around there, didn't I? Postmillennial and premillennial. Oh, I just described postmillennialism. Historic, mm, no, I didn't. I just described premillennialism. Um, Historic postmillennialism, this is the one at the top. Forgive me for being a little confusing here. That one teaches, this is very rare, you don't see this as much, that we as the church will create a perfect thousand-year reign before Christ returns. Because it is confusing, we're just going to let that go aside today. Go back to the front. Let's, let's close with what's clear, all right? What do we really believe? What do we really believe? Look at the cross on the bottom picture. We believe Jesus died and rose. Look at the church. We believe that Jesus reigns in the church, that the millennium has begun. 
that Christ is in charge, that he's victorious, that nothing is outside of his control. As I said, heaven and earth are already given in authority to him. What do we believe? That Satan knows that his time is short. There's a little season of torture and terror. That happens when he, he deceives the nations. I contend that's always been happening since Christ ascended, and we continue to watch it go on as Christians are persecuted throughout the globe. What do we believe? That at the end of all of this, as the days of Noah, when things are going on like normal, Christ will return. He will roll it all up like a scroll and he will usher in a new heavens and a new earth. That paradise and that hope is what we are looking forward to and what we celebrate on this Christ the King Sunday. Hi, right. you've done a great job following a very, very intense sermon. Uh, I pray that at the very least, again, you've enjoyed those stories and I've convinced you that however confusing the Bible may be, the centrality of Jesus Christ's death and resurrection and the fact that it is sufficient and what God has planned all the way through is definitely true and for you.